Halloween is one of those cross-quarter days? Right. It's in between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. Okay? So uh, it's like November 1st is All Souls Day, and the night before All Souls Day is All Souls Eve, or All Hallows Eve, or All Hallows Evening Halloween. <laughs> Mr. Derek Vienhoff, who's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yeah, Deke. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, I, I really encourage people to, you can go out every single night and see the stars, and it's really, um, you know, at first, they're, they're, uh, the constellations are unfamiliar, but it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I use an analogy of if you went to the same bar every single night, you know, for a year or for 10 years, after a while, every single person in there would become familiar to you, you know? Yeah, it's <laughs> like cheers. They, yeah, they become your friends, or at least you'd know, you'd start to know who they are, and then you'd be like, wait a minute, where's Jim? You know, he's supposed to be right there. Yeah. Or, wait a minute, Jim's sitting in the other side of the bar. That's not his usual spot. And so, um, you know, that's a, uh, I think, a great, perfectly free hobby, if, if you're at all able to do it, to go out every single mm-hmm. night and make a... Uh, you know, walk through your neighborhood, or you may have to go somewhere where it's dark enough. Um, and and if you do that every night for a year, you'll start to really uh, understand the patterns of the constellations as they move. Because as we go around the sun each year, the the backdrop of stars that we see changes throughout the year. So you'll if you go out every night and do a walk in the dark, you know, at like 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Or you know, if your work schedule is Hey, I need to get up at 3 a.m. You know, if you do it at 3 a.m., it doesn't matter. Uh, you'll start to see the pattern after after a while, just like going to your favorite bar. Right. That makes that's a great analogy for people. And to me, it's like I really want to grasp what is the most important thing to understand when looking at the stars, besides just the the awe factor that you can kind of get as a human, just kind of observing. The, the outer space and and just a bit of surface thinking about sort of your place in the universe what what are the i'm sure there's infinitely deep levels to it but what would you say to people is the most sort of important thing to learn and that a lot of these uh myths that you you investigate and write about have to say about our place in the universe and, and just this the the patterns that we do see in the sky wow that's a great question so um yeah it's actually i would say that familiarity with the stars and the motions of the cycles that we go through will enable you or better equip you to understand the ancient wisdom that was given to humanity at some very ancient point all appears to use the language of celestial metaphor the motions of the sun the moon the stars uh the visible planets mm-hmm. and the you know the larger cycles there's a daily cycle 
obviously we're all familiar with the you know the motions of the sun throughout the day and the stars also have a daily cycle rising in the east and and moving across the sky you know if you were to stay up all night and lie out looking out at the sky for an entire night you would see the stars uh moving across the sky from east to west and that's simply a factor uh, you know a product of us spinning on the uh, on the Earth, it's spinning towards the east. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It, unless you don't believe the Earth is a sphere, which is a another, whole another yeah. whole another uh, uh, hour of conversation. But um, <laughs> but so the the short answer to your question is, I believe that the ancient wisdom, whether it's in the sacred stories and traditions that were handed down in cultures that didn't necessarily write them down, there's a whole tradition of handing down stories. You know, oral culture, storytelling, um, certain initiatory, like shamanic uh, lines of succession where uh, the older shaman would pass it on to the younger, newer shaman, uh, whether it's written down or not. Or if it is written down in ancient scriptures, such as we find in ancient India, ancient China, ancient Japan obviously ancient uh, Mesopotamia and the biblical scriptures. Um, the ancient Egyptians had texts like the pyramid texts. Um, so, you know, all that ancient wisdom is written in a celestial, uh, a celestial metaphor. So I think that looking at the stars, of course, is, you know, it's wonderful for all kinds of things like finding your way. Yeah. <laughs> you can, you can actually navigate navigate across the oceans just with knowledge of the stars, as has been proven by the, all the Polynesian uh, peoples that could travel from Hawaii all the way to Tahiti simply, uh, well, not just by using the stars, but mainly by using the stars because they also had techniques for when there's clouds or when it's daytime using the you know patterns of the waves that they could observe, the motions the observations of animals and things like that, but uh, birds. But mm-hmm. uh, so it all, obviously looking at the stars has all kinds of aesthetic value, yeah. uh, some practical value, but it also has value of pointing us towards the, uh, the, the ancient wisdom, which is actually talking about something that I think every single man and woman is actually – connected to this invisible realm as well even though that we've been cut off from that the modern world tells us there's no such thing yeah. everybody actually in their own experience probably has uh, to greater and lesser degree awareness of this reality and the and the ancient traditions of humanity clearly recognize this reality and give it great importance so that's the the use the stars to talk about this invisible realm this infinite realm that actually impacts our lives in important ways <clears throat> right Excuse me. and so are they with with these myths and the, this ancient wisdom it's a it's a wisdom that's describing to us this invisible realm and supposed to sort of reconnect us with it in our daily lives and is the stars finding these myths uh portrayed through the stars help us to to understand it in that sense well that's what i maintain that's uh-huh. my that's my interpretation of the evidence that i've found um and that other people have talked about as well obviously this is not something unique to me but i believe that what the ancient 
scriptures, myths, sacred stories from around the world are doing is using celestial metaphor in order to convey, you know, profound concepts and truths about the universe that we're in, which contains both a material and a spiritual or invisible component and our own, you know, human experience, which actually contains both a material and spiritual component. So they're using the stars in the, in the celestial realm as a teaching tool or as a representation of, or as a uh, way of conveying these truths to people um, about the infinite realm, which is an invisible realm, which we cannot see, but which actually, if you, um, there's some accounts of, you know, shamans from, you know, in Canada, the First Nations, they, they use the term First Nations here, the Native Americans or American Indians, yeah. they will, uh, you know, and there's a whole, you know, whole messed up history that goes along with yeah. the the encounters between people from Europe and, <laughs> you know, the people that were already here, right? But um, there, there are accounts such as the account of Black Elk, who was from the Lakota people in uh, in modern modern day areas of uh, Montana and uh, the Dakotas. The Dakotas and the Lakotas are are uh, related related nations, but um, Black Elk said that invisible realm is actually that's the real world behind this one, and that's that's the real realm. The invisible realm is what this one comes from. the the uh, The other world actually is the source. It's like the seed world, um, or in if you think of the movie The Matrix. Yeah. Uh, where you know the very first one where Neo goes and starts to see kind of like lines of code flowing down, uh, it's like the code. That's where that's the source code world that project. You know that everything that happens in this world is or it has its origination in that world. So if you're able to go into the world of the code, which Neo in that movie, uh, you see him gaining more and more. Uh, you know, kind of comfort of moving between those two worlds until he can actually change the code. And when he's gotten to that point, then all of a sudden the agents that used to terrify him are now terrified of him because he can change the code, right? Right. And uh, so now their bullets can't hurt him anymore. He's So he's able to go to that realm uh, and you can gain knowledge that you can't gain otherwise and you can actually in some cases, affect changes that you can't change uh, or that, that have impact over here in the ordinary reality that we're most of the time focused on. The, but the anyway, material so, world, yeah. Right. So, so that, is, that, that worldview is very prevalent in all the ancient wisdom that's preserved in, in these ancient scriptures and myths and traditions that there are some things that you can only learn by going to that side. And there are some things that you can only fix. You know, if there's a problem here in this world, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, one of the most uh, kind of traditional or important tasks of a shaman was to heal, you know, sicknesses. And sometimes they would have to go to the other world and find the source of it and fix it there. 
Right. Or, or hey, there's no, you know, all the animals are avoiding us. You know, what's going on? Why, like, why are all the deer? Why have they disappeared? Well, let me go into the other world and f- see what the problem is. We've obviously angered some. Uh, you know, we've we've messed something up over there that has to be fixed over there. So that's um, that's what I believe these these stories are doing. And actually, um, you know, we kind of jumped right in, but I'm mm-hmm. interested. You know, thanks for having me. I wanted to yeah, say yeah. Thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for thanks for inviting me onto your show, and uh, I, I appreciate you reaching out. And congratulations on getting your podcast underway. I think Thank we're probably we're probably like under under episode twenty, right? Oh yeah, fresh. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So I'm interested to know kind of how you encountered this material or what what, what caused you to yeah. reach out and well, make a call. It's kind of interesting because actually I don't remember how I started following you on Twitter, but I know I've been following your blog and your Twitter account for a few years now. Um, I just have been into Graham Hancock and different guys like that, John Anthony West and just the Joe Rogan podcast and different guys who've been on there and – uh, I read a lot of like Krishnamurti and like uh, some of the newer esoteric stuff, like the new agey stuff. And just as I, I'm, I mean, I'm 28 now, so like when I for the last maybe 10 years, kind of just uh, just that whole journey of finding yourself and discovering the world and figuring out what's real or not. And I come from a, a Christian upbringing, which I sort of deviated a bit from, and it's 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 like the Dutch Calvinist version of. Christianity that came over here, uh, like whatever, hundred years ago or whatever it might might have been, but uh, kind of a half-assed way of looking at it. It's like uh, you know they didn't really jam the stuff down your throat, the literalism of the Bible and whatnot, but uh, it was sort of unquestioned. So as I got older, just just a basically a, pers- a personality of questioning things, and that's what kind of led to this podcast as well to just. Uh, have a my kind of close group of friends and different people we're connected with just kind of exchange conversations and ideas and stuff like that. So yeah, that's pretty much how I found you. Uh, right on. Yeah. So thanks for that that background. I wouldn't I wouldn't call Dutch Calvinist half assed. <laughs> well, our a, version of it was maybe, but okay. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty uh, uh, strong form of. Uh, you know, a severe form of, of interpretation. Actually, yeah. I, I, I uh, you know, I was, it's no secret that I was, you know, took a literalist approach to the Bible for 20 years of my adult life, um, starting when I was about 21 or 22. Um, I, I had a Presbyterian background, which actually has, is one of the more Calvinistic, uh, you know, denominations, but it was very mild, um, in terms of we didn't go to church every week growing up, things like that. But mm. I did, I did become more and more, uh, literalistic, uh, in my interpretation of the Bible. And I always say, uh, that I believe people are drawn to the Bible because there's truth and beauty there and they recognize it. Uh, I, I believe that the literalist interpretation of it is, is incorrect, but, um, I still believe that it's kind of like, there are languages that have um, shared words or shared sounds. Like if you speak Spanish and you encounter a bunch of texts that are written in French, you might, I, I, you know, I'm not a native Spanish speaker, but if you grew up in Spain speaking Spanish and you encountered maybe a Portuguese text or a French text, you'd probably be able to 
read some of that. It's a now, romantic it, influence. Yeah, and then maybe not all of it. Or if someone was speaking Basque and you were speaking Spanish, you might have some, you might be able to guess at a lot of the words. Well, you know, so some of the message could come through is what I'm saying. And I believe that the ancient scriptures are not speaking a literalistic language, but even if you're taking them literally, some of the message can come through. It's kind of like, you know, the you know, someone speaks Cantonese and someone speaks Mandarin. They can understand some, yeah, and actually, uh, 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 and guess at some. And so, I think some of the message will get distorted because some of the guesses will be wrong. If you're trying to interpret it in a literalistic way, you're you're interpreting it using the wrong language. I would say. But even so, some of the beauty of the message will still come through and be attractive to people and be helpful to them in their lives. I just think um, I had to change my view because as I found more and more evidence that it is not speaking a literal language, it's not speaking a language of literal terrestrial history. It's speaking a esoteric or metaphoric, allegorical language of celestial. But it's still absolutely <laughs> – it's true. Somebody says, oh, you know, you don't think the Bible's true? No, it's absolutely talking about truths, but it's not doing, it's not historical truths. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, I mean, so we couldn't even really, you couldn't, there's no other way to prove that it's a literal interpretation, just based on the fact that there's so many other cultures that have similar myths with similar characters, with similar characteristics and birth dates and you know, the, can we get into the context of some of it for some people? So, the, like the actual maybe example of a few myths that have direct correlations to star movements. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you actually, right before you asked that question, you were raising some really good points about uh, well, how you know how do we know if it's literal or not? Um, and one of the examples that you gave is well, there's all these different stories around the world which have very strong parallels to each other because yeah. one of the one of the um so the very first and i've you know we can talk about other ones too if sure. there's i'm always concerned of listeners who's like oh well how come he always uses the samson myth well <laughs> that's the first one that that's the first one that really started to jar my literalistic worldview was um in the book Hamlet's Mill, which was published in 1969, um, they talk about there's a whole chapter devoted to Samson. And actually, they veer off from Samson into um, a story from the a ancient Japanese Kojiki, uh, which is a, a, a collection of uh, myths that, from ancient Japan, where there's a character who's, they believe, very similar to Samson named Susan Nowo. And actually now there's all these, even if you like Google the names of some of these ancient mythological Japanese characters, you won't get to the, the Kojiki because you'll have to wade through pages and pages of results that have to do with anime. Yeah. You know, because oh, all, yeah. the, all these characters are now like heroes, you know, like modern looking anime heroes. Yeah. But anyway, that's cool. Whatever. Um, you know, I think passing on stories to the next generation is fantastic. But anyway, so in this Hamlet's Mill, they spend a whole lot of time comparing the Samson story to the this this uh, episodes or cycle of myths from ancient Japan. But in the in the Samson story, there are some very clear celestial references. Uh, one 
being that he reaches out his hand and takes the jawbone of an ass in uh this is in the the old testament or hebrew scripture book of judges he reaches out and takes his jawbone he killed the and, whole army with it is that- well it kills a thousand of his enemies with it so uh that's that in and of itself is a uh you know questionable weapon to use for a thousand you know maybe Seems unlikely <laughs> you might you might have to use it if you're in a jam you know you might use it for one or two if you're put upon by a thousand enemies but i would think that at some point he would switch to a sword even if it has to take it from you know one of the people that he's already killed he might switch to a sword because a jawbone you know might wear out or something after a thousand enemies but anyway the the point is that this jawbone myth is found around the world there are stories uh in new zealand or uh, what's today called new zealand uh, aotearoa uh, from the Maori myth, where there's a, a demigod uh, who uses the jawbone of his own grandmother uh, to, as a weapon. There's a how rude, uh, yeah, <laughs> his his own respected grandmother, as they say in the in Hamlet's Mill. And then in South America, there's a hero who uses the jawbone of a tapir, uh, you know, a different animal. But so the jawbone in the sky is a very clear, bright. V of stars next to Orion that's called the Hyades. It's the jawbone of the bull of Taurus. And it's actually right now we're we're on our Earth's path towards what's going to be winter here in the northern hemisphere, summer down in the southern hemisphere. But uh, we're hurtling towards the winter time and we're going to get the beautiful array of stars that includes Orion and Taurus in our kind of primetime viewing hours after the sun goes down pretty soon. But right now they're already visible. If you get up at 3 or 4 or 5 a.m., you can go outside and just marvel at Orion up there in the sky. And next to Orion is Taurus. And you can see how he's reaching out his arm towards the Hyades. Oh, and the Native Americans also, the Lakota people, the the Orion was central to the um, – Lakota sacred traditions, that whole region of the sky with Orion, Sirius, the Pleiades, the Hyades, the twins of what we call the twins of Gemini, uh, were all uh, uh, made up a, a great circle in the sky that formed this uh, sacred um, great cross of two, two uh, you know, that you see on the medicine, the the medicine wheels, you know, that you see with a circle with a, a vertical line and a horizontal line and some feathers attached to the different points sometimes or beads. Okay. That, that that great cross, that great circle was um, seen in the sky with the same set of constellations that I'm talking about. But anyway, to uh, to come back to your question, there are stories around the world that have very clear parallels. And it just happened that the Samson story was the first one that really – caught my attention um, because when they started talking about, well, he used this jawbone and they say Sunday school students for generations must have kind of puzzled over his choice of weapon of this jawbone. And right there in the, in the sky is this jawbone of Taurus. And actually it points towards these two other stars that are the, the horns of the bull when we see that constellation as a bull, as Taurus. But 
in the Samson myth, it's the jawbone of an ass or a donkey. You know, the King James version says ass. So that's how you, uh, that's how you get, you know, referred to in generations of literature for a long time, the Samson and the jawbone of the ass. But the, the constellation Taurus actually does show up as a donkey or an ass or a, you know, you know, that, that type of animal in a lot of myths, uh, including in the Bible, there are stories of uh, a, a prophet named Balaam, uh, uh, also in the Old Testament, who rides on a donkey, and it's the same constellation. Uh, I've done a you know a discussion on on the web of Balaam, a pretty extensive discussion showing he encounters this angel, and the angel is only visible to the donkey. So he keeps trying to make the donkey go, and the donkey won't go because there's an angel with a flaming sword standing in the way. And the donkey finally crushes Balaam's foot against the wall, and then he gets so angry he starts to beat the donkey, and then the donkey starts to talk to him. And he's so astounded and astonished that the donkey's talking to him that he realizes uh, something you know supernatural is going on, and the donkey says, look, there's an angel right there. If I kept going, it probably would have killed you. And, um, you know, why are you beating me? Why are you mistreating me when I'm saving your life? Well, that story involves the same constellation, only this time, instead of being a bull, it's a donkey. And that's why, or, or that connects to back to the Sam- Samson story, it's the jawbone of an ass. Sometimes uh, in ancient Greece, there's a god who rides on a donkey. I don't know if you know who it is. Um, it's that maybe a little bit of an obscure, obscure reference. So, I won't put you on the spot too much unless, uh, unless I'm trying to think. Who is that again? Donkey? Well, yeah. So there was a, a a god who was actually hurled down from Olympus to Earth by his angry parents, either Zeus or Hera or Hera. Uh, one of in different versions, it's Zeus who hurls him down. In other versions, it's Hera, the the main wife of Zeus who hurls him down and he falls through the sky so far hits the ground and and his feet from then on are twisted so he is uh, partially kind of uh, lame unable to walk so he has to ride on a donkey he also uh, fashions later on a giant a metal giant named Talos holy shit carries him around yeah um (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, I think there's a video game where, like, everybody's worshiping Talos. Um, oh. Skyrim. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, I've played Skyrim. I just didn't. My uh... kid, my kids play it. Oh, it's a wicked game. Yeah, <laughs> played it. Yeah, and it's like, oh, Talos. That's anyway. Um, he makes this uh, metal mach- uh, robot that eventually. Um, it, it all relates to the actually the constellation Orion. So he sometimes he rides on the back of his robot, sometimes or his metal you know metal man that he makes. Sometimes he rides on the back of a donkey. If you don't know, uh, that's okay because it's not necessarily the most well known set of stories. But it's Hephaestus or Hephaestus or Vul- his name is Vulcan in Latin. So the, the same god, just like you know Poseidon is Neptune. When we go from Greek to Latin, or Zeus becomes Jupiter, Hephaestus or Hephaestus becomes Vulcan, the god of fire, the god of the forge, the smith, the the maker of these you know amazing things. Well, he rides around on a donkey because his one of his parents threw him down out of heaven, 
and uh, there it's very similar in the Balaam story. Remember, he got his foot crushed against the wall by the donkey, so his foot got twisted. In the Hephaestus story, his feet are also twisted because he was thrown out of heaven, mm-hmm. so he rides on the back of a donkey. So you can see a parallel here. It's because the constellation Perseus, which is directly above Taurus, has, you can see in the sky, twisted feet. Or sometimes he's depicted as, as having his feet crossed. Because if you, if you look at the constellation, one of his feet of the constellation is actually turned inward. Mm. Uh, you know, at like a 90-degree angle. So it does look like you know, he got his foot crushed against the wall in the Balaam story in the Old Testament. Or you know, he's thrown out of heaven by his parents in the Hephaestus story. So he's riding on the back of a, of a donkey, uh, which is the constellation Taurus, which sometimes is envisioned as a bull, but sometimes a, a donkey with very long ears or an ass, right? So, and actually, the, the, uh, I just did a, not too long ago, an uh, explanation of the story of King Midas, uh, you know, who famously wanted everything to turn to gold at his touch, right? And then he realized, oh, that's a horrible wish. I wish I could undo that wish, which yeah. the gods are merciful to him, and then they undo the wish after he... He ke- finds he can't eat any food, can't drink any. He tries to drink some wine. It turns to gold. Yeah, in he his didn't throat. think very far in that. Scenario. He didn't think very far. But he's actually, uh, in another episode in the Midas story, given the ears of a donkey. Well, it's the same figure in, um, in the heavens. So this con- same constellation will show up in all these different myths. Uh, you know, we've, we've just talked about kind of a cluster of different myths that yeah. relate to the same part of the sky. So back to your original question is um, sometimes or if you're taking the Bible literally as I was and someone points out this connection between Samson and the jawbone and say, hey, look, that's right. You know, that works out perfectly for Orion and the Hyades, this V shape, the Hyades. You know, if we trace our jawbone, we can see. You know, underneath our jaw, it is V-shaped. Someone might say, well, that's what a remarkable coincidence. Or, mm-hmm. yes, of course, it could be in the sky and have happened on the ground. It sh- Samson could still be a literal historical figure who really did kill people with a jawbone. That's just a coincidence. But then, as you pointed out in the run-up to your question, we have the question of, okay, if Samson was literal history, was this figure in... New Zealand in the Maori uh, myth was he also literal? Did he kill someone with? He just happened to use a jawbone as well, or which one's yeah. literal? And then we, you know, and then we start to see well, it could actually also be riding on a donkey. You know, which one's literal? Could they all be literal? I guess you could say they could all be literal, and they just all happen to happen <laughs> on Earth in all these different places and times, or in the heavens in all these different places and times. And also match up perfectly with the constellations. Or you could say, you know what, there's so much evidence that maybe we have to throw out this original hypothesis that we had and try on a different one. Yeah. Well, what amazes me so much about modern day society, myself included, is that we participate in these traditions around certain times of the year for various reasons based on our religious background or whatnot. And we don't really think at all very deeply about first of all the aesthetics of what we're doing and the history of it and why we're doing it like why do we take evergreen trees into our homes as modern day westernized christian people tend to do 
around the winter solstice on this December 25th date and, and contribute attribute that to to Jesus's uh, uh, birth. And the, the the three wise men, there's a connection to Orion's belt there as well. Is that correct? Yeah, so this is actually a really interesting um, example. But so let's talk about first, you said, you know, in this modern time, we still participate in these certain rituals or traditions at certain points on the year or at certain, you know, certain times we actually line our lives up here, even in the modern world, uh, with the motions of the earth going around the sun or the motions certain points on the calendar we celebrate a birthday right well, that's our birthday what what is that well that's the day that the earth gets back to the same place where it was on the day that you were born so actually all the shadows and the the quality of the light is going to be the same you know we all notice hey it's starting to feel like fall oh the shadows are even different or the quality of the light is even different. That's because the sun's coming in to your place on earth in a different angle Mm -hmm. based on where we are on our, our motions. So, uh, we're actually lining our, our own lives up with the motions of the whole, you know, the whole universe. When we do these things, we're, we're lining ourselves up with the cycles that go beyond We're we're aligning our cycles. Hey, I celebrate my birthday (laughs) I gather for Christmas mm-hmm. at this time of year. I do Halloween at this time of year. We're lining our own calendars, our own schedules up with the schedule of what's going on in the heavens. And that relates back to we were talking about earlier the idea that the invisible realm is the real world that's behind this one, or it's the source code, it's the seed world, it's the world of the gods the programmer as simulation theory people would say yeah Yeah. that's right it's the it's the source okay so we're lining ourselves up what's what's going on i believe is we're acknowledging that the material world here below in some sense comes from and depends upon and is and should be in harmony with the invisible world which we can't see and so we're acknowledging hey we have to what we do down here has to take its uh, cue from or take its lead from what's going on out there or up there. So the um, the Christmas tree that you talked about, I believe, is actually a really important symbol that we find throughout myth around the world. And actually, there's an older tradition that's called the Yule Log, oh, where yes. they would drag in, the, you know, so there's the dragging in of this horizontal log and throwing it in the fire and then there's the erecting of the christmas tree and bedecking it with little points of light you know little i think they used to use little candles after a while we got electricity and decided it's much safer to put electric lights little electric lights on the tree but we're there's uh there's a component of fire there there's a component of wood there and there's this horizontal um aspect to the tradition the yule log you know they would drag like the, the biggest tree they could find into the house like for the yule log you can see some of these pictures like from the 1800s yeah. on old christmas cards of like eight 
you know, eight burly guys trying to pull this giant log into the house right. and then um, and then erecting it into a vertical position is actually uh, an incredibly powerful um, theme symbol, that runs. Yeah. through. Yeah, it's a symbol and a theme that runs through all these myths around the world of um, of the, the the tree that gets chopped down and then the, the tree that gets uh, put back up. Like even if you go back to the ancient Sumer and Mesopotamia, the Gilgamesh and his companion twin Enkidu um, have to go on this big, the, the most famous or well-known uh, and actually the most most copied out because these scribes were actually practicing. They loved to copy this one story in particular was the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu going to the cedar forest to chop down the tallest tree in the forest. So they went to, to chop down this tree and it's actually guarded by, you know, this being of incredible power and kind of terrifying appearance. And he's often kind of thought of as an ogre or a demon or something, but actually he's, he's not necessarily a malevolent figure because he's trying to protect the tree. He's been put there to protect the forest. Hmm. And he actually kind of complains to Gilgamesh saying, why do you want to chop down this tree? And why are you attacking me? I'm just doing my job. The gods actually put me here. Why are you chopping this tree down? And he's actually, uh, you know, he feels his rights are being violated and probably, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's expressing moral indignation at being attacked by these guys, but they do chop down the tree. And it's the same pattern over and over. We find it in ancient Egypt of Osiris is killed by his treacherous brother and then he's uh, encased in a wooden coffin or sarcophagus and then a tree actually grows up around the sarcophagus and then the tree gets used as the pillar of this palace in Byblos um, which is up in like Lebanon in, in the in the myth it's the king of Byblos uh, uses this great pillar to uh, build his palace. And then Isis is looking around for Osiris. Where'd he go? She's searching all over the world. She finally tracks him down inside this pillar. And then the pillar is handed off to her again. So, uh, and then she gets Osiris back. So, and brings him back to life. So there's this whole uh, symbology of the winter solstice. It actually opens up, you know, a, a huge theme throughout all myth but it ties in i believe to each and every single one of us and that's why we celebrate it and 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 pattern our lives after it and 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 schedule our calendars around christmas because yeah. it's actually it's actually a picture it, it operates on all these different levels but on one level what it's what it's picturing i believe i'll just i'll just make a long story short by saying i believe it depicts the myths are talking about us coming down into this realm and saying, look, you're in this realm. You think you're only material, but actually you've got a spiritual component. And if you think a little bit about it, you'll notice that that's true in your life. You have these encounters or certain experiences that uh, you can probably relate to and say, oh, yeah, I guess that might be true. But when you're cast down into this world, it's like the tree being chopped down. You have a horizontal component which is your animal nature, right? We all have a human body that's animal, right? It does, we, we've got animal uh, uh, emotions. And we, yeah. If we get angry enough, we'll start to act like a vicious animal or something. So we have this animal nature. We can't get away from it. An animal goes around, most animals, on all fours, 
horizontally. That's our animal nature is the, the, this, this column, this log when it's chopped down. But we also want to uh, have a point where we start to realize, hey, you've got a spiritual nature and start to lift that part back up and maybe get, it, get control of your animal nature, you know, get them in harmony with your spirit nature so that, hey, all that strength that you have, that's great. But let's bring it into harmony with what it's supposed to be used for to like maybe protect people instead of hurt them or yeah. um, let's elevate the spiritual part. That's the, the, the tree being raised back up. Why do we do that at the winter solstice? Because that's when the sun starts to move back up, right? The sun is sinking lower and lower towards the southern horizon if you're in the northern hemisphere as it is right now. Uh, here in the northern hemisphere, the days are getting shorter and shorter. The nights are getting longer, you know, yeah. longer where you are because you're farther north than I am. You're like at 40, what, three degrees north latitude. I'm at 35. But um, the days are getting shorter. The nights are getting longer. But it, And that represents sinking further and further down into the material realm, actually. Um, we could talk about it just Why makes so much sense. True. Yeah, right. and it, but it, but it turns around at some point, right? It doesn't get the days don't get shorter and shorter forever because yeah. if they did, if they did, we wouldn't be able to grow any crops and we'd all die. But there's a turning point. There's a point where the descent into the lower realm uh, turns. You have this second birth in your life where you start to realize, oh, I have a spiritual component, and I. I want to start to get in touch with that. It's like, you know, uh, when Luke gets told by Obi-Wan Kenobi, hey, there's a force. You know, let's start to get <laughs> let's start to get you to learn how to use it. Let's get you in tune with it. Yeah. And, and Han Solo says, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. I don't believe that stuff. And then later he acknowledges it, too. So there's a point in our life where we start to get in touch with the spirit. And that is represented by the tree being stood back up. Remember that Osiris, you know, was chopped down and then he was encased in a tree and then he was built into a, a pole, uh, into a pillar. And then, uh, and then Isis brings him back to life. And so that's what we're representing, I believe, with the Christmas tree. Uh, it's the turning point. And then the sun on its path starts to go back higher and higher in the sky. And eventually it will cross the equinox line and we'll have days will start to get longer than nights. So all those things have spiritual meanings. They were used by these ancient myths. This ancient wisdom uses all these beautiful cycles to tell us something about our own life and and, uh, and actually our own relation to the universe and not just the visible universe, but the invisible universe. And that's what I think is going on. And And, and your original point was, hey, we don't even seem to know what we're doing well at least we're still patterning you know yes at, at some level maybe some of the message is coming through yeah but i do i do believe that we're probably like luke you know we're supposed to like get more and more in touch with the force like it's not it's not good to just be like han solo and say well it doesn't exist uh because it's an important part it's part of what we're down here supposed to be doing so it, it would be good to know more about it yeah, no, that's so so much to unpack there too. But it makes me think about uh, just taking a spiritual lesson from that sort of uh, lowering of the sun and then the rebirth. It just shows you the cyclic nature of the universe, and maybe that's 
uh, part of the real ground of being is just which a lot of these myth touch, myths uh, and traditions touch on is the cyclic nature of things and just the duality of life and the fact that you know when things are going bad in your life i mean there's always a turning point there, there things can come back around or or vice versa if things are going great there's always a chance that 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 trouble could come and that change could come and that you, some thing that you might have to face in life yeah, no, those those are no, those are good points. And actually, that you know, if you read like the Tao Te Ching, uses all the same sort of cyclical um, discussion, and it is, it, it absolutely is in a in our own lives, and also, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, I just came back from this wonderful conference on procession and ancient knowledge in Southern California, and they're talking a lot of those uh, speakers are very knowledgeable about the myths of ancient India and the Vedic wisdom that talks about the yuga cycles that impact not just, you know, our individual lives. They do impact our individual lives and they relate to our individual lives, but also we have this very linear view that we're taught in kind of conventional paradigm of human history that, oh, history is just progress, progress, you know, maybe a few little interruptions here and there, a dark age now and then, but... In general, we have early humans, you know, wandering around, knocking rocks together, and then they get more advanced and more advanced, and then, boom, ancient Egypt, and then more advanced, and uh, and look at us now, cell phones and YouTube, and it's like, oh, everything just keeps getting better and better, yeah. uh, lin- linear. That's really <laughs> probably not uh, the correct view of ancient history, is probably cyclical, and there's more and more evidence emerging that there was, you know, as you mentioned, Graham Hancock talks about a lost civilization. He was talking about it before Gobekli Tepe was even discovered or rediscovered or, um, you know, dated to as old as it's been dated. But there have been people like John Anthony West, who's one of the first ones. He actually um, credits R.A. Schwaller de Lubitsch, who pointed out that the Sphinx appears to have been weathered by water. Schwaller de Lubitsch wrote that in the early 60s. John Anthony West recognized the importance of that statement and wrote about it in the 70s in Serpent in the Sky. And then he uh, started asking his professor friends, hey, do you know any geologists? And then they found Robert Schock. And then Robert Schock went to Egypt with John Anthony West and said, you're right. It appears that there that civilization is much older. There must have been some extremely advanced civilization much earlier than the conventional. Uh, and everybody laughed and said, "That's ridiculous. Show me the evidence." And then Gobekli Tepe was discovered, which was completed by 10,000 BC, which is 12,000 years ago. Completed by then, yeah. and completely buried deliberately by 8,000 BC, which is long before the conventional dating of dynastic Egypt and the pyramids and things like that. And it was clearly some advanced civilization or culture that was doing some very sophisticated stonework and smoothing of these stones, very large, very beautiful. And their artwork is very mysterious. And um, anyway, there's obviously cycles in human history. And yet we're given this linear, well, if you don't know that it was cyclical, that might not be good because you think everything just naturally always gets better and better. You can't even ask, well, what happened if you don't even know 
that there was an ancient civilization, we might be wanting to ask ourselves what happened. And we can't prepare for the future. What about a possible uh, impact event? Right. This is the this is the idea that we as as humans might not be focusing on our uh, defense of uh, celestial bodies impacting the Earth at some point in the future. Right. So you, you you can't even ask the question, hey, what happened if you don't know, yeah. if you don't entertain that idea? And actually, um, you know, the impact event is one. So we have this evidence. Then we have to look around. OK, we've got a crime scene. Now we have to look for clues and to put together what really happened. It might have been the comet did it or, or the meteor did it. But Robert Schock has actually come to the conclusion that it's uh, more likely the sun has its own cycles of activity and kind of more dormancy or sleepy periods as well. And the sun may have become more active and had more coronal mass ejections and electromagnetic plasma outbursts that could really basically fry all the electronics on Earth with, with very little warning. Like maybe with our modern satellites and monitoring of the sun we would have 14 hours notice before all the electricity was gone you'd think it would fry our brains as well if it changed a little bit like i mean we need that sweet spot to live as a biological creature and i mean you go outside when it's like i don't know plus 40 and you feel like man if it was a few degrees hotter i don't know if i just wouldn't just burn up yeah Plus 40 is actually very cold uh, down here in the U.S. Yeah. where we was uh, Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah, okay. no, speak I as a Canadian, yeah. I know what you're saying. So uh, it would, uh, I'm sure, and this is, you know, read read and listen to Robert Schock on, on what it would do. It might also cause the ground to be radioactive, which is why that people may have gone underground and you have these underground cities. Uh, so... Um, can I just it's make a, a point on the the, yeah. the, the pyramids, uh, the 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 dating of the Sphinx? Now, is there a connection between um, when John Anthony West uh, thinks that it was built and that it was facing the constellation Leo, and that the three pyramids actually line up to Orion's belt? It's sort of like that it functions as a star star dating system to sh- show you when it was built, or is that is that any? Yeah, so that's that's. Um... And actually, Robert Baval is also closely associated, and he's written some books in conjunction with Graham Hancock. And um, yeah, so that's a that's another that's called, or some people call that archaeoastronomy, is the studying of the alignments of ancient monuments with the celestial certain stars. And you actually find it here uh, in the Americas as well with the what have been called medicine wheels, which are a lot of them are up at the latitudes where you are. There's one in Wyoming called the Bighorn Medicine Wheel, which I actually talked about a little bit in my first book. There are alignments with specific stars, the rising of specific stars like um, Fomalhaut, which is a star that's visible right now uh, below the constellation Aquarius, a very bright star, uh, and others. It's, it's aligned with other stars. So back to the Sphinx question that you asked um, so I, you know, I, I try not to talk too much. I don't want to put words in someone else's mouth, yeah. you know, what John Anthony West or Robert Schock believes, because I have to be careful. I might say something incorrect. So it's best to go to the source on what anyone else believes. But yeah. um, what I believe that the general uh, body of work that these 
authors are have said, and you know, I've read their books, of course, um, and have them on the bookshelf in front of me right here. I'm looking at Keeper of Genesis, you know, by Robert Bavall and Graham Hancock directly in front of me, and The Orion Mystery by Robert Bavall and Adrian Gilbert right next to it on the shelf. So they're talking about alignments of the pyramids. This is the, uh, you know, this is a hotly contested theory. The conventional scholars, I believe, still reject it, you know, if you go to Wikipedia. But mm-hmm. they're, they're talking about the alignment of the, the three main Giza pyramids with the belt stars of Orion and also out in front of the, the second pyramid or the, um, the Khafra pyramid, it's called, is the Great Sphinx you know, this massive sculpture and it's basically pointing due east. So you could say, well, how does that align with any constellation specifically? Well, due east is where the sun rises basically on the equinoxes, right? If you, uh, you know, watch the sun rise throughout the year, you'll see that its rising point on the eastern horizon is further and further south as we get towards winter solstice, if you're in the northern hemisphere. Because if you're in the northern hemisphere, if you're on a ball and you're on the top half of a sphere and the ball is orbiting the sun around the plane of the equator, although we're tilted, of course, that's what causes the seasons. But Mm -hmm. if you just think about the sun basically shining directly on the equator, if you're up on the northern half, then to see the sun, you've got to look towards the south, right? And then as we turn on this sphere, the sun pops up in the east because we're spinning towards the east and then eventually as our spin will cause it to sink back down below the west well it will pop up further and further north as we get towards the summer solstice as we get towards the north pole pointing directly at the sun or as directly at the sun as it ever gets on our on our path and then it'll start to sink back down towards the southern hemisphere and somewhere along the line it'll cross the halfway point twice right it'll cross on the way up towards the summer solstice it'll cross on the way down Mm -hmm. so that's that's the equinox point and on the equinox point there is uh you know there's always stars in the sky where the sun's about to come up uh if you go out and and watch the sun rise on the eastern horizon and you get there when it's pitch dark you'll see a bunch of stars and then the sky will start to get lighter and lighter blue in the east. Even while the west is still pitch dark, the east will start to get blue. Then it'll get lighter blue. And eventually we won't be able to see the stars anymore because the sun's getting too close. And then the sun will pop up over the horizon. Well, the, the stars that are in the background that the sun is in at any given point can be determined if you know the zodiac. The zodiac is the stars that the sun and the planets appear to move through from our perspective on Earth. So those stars that the sun is in at any given part of the year is like a a marker to let us know where we are on our path. That's why you say, well, where's the sun now? Well, it's rising in Virgo. Okay, well, we must be getting on towards fall then. It must start to be feeling like uh, leaves turning and light and shadows starting to feel like fall. That's right. So because where we are, you can tell where we are by you know, it's basically uh, triangulating or it's like a rifle sights, you know, on a rifle, you've got the front sight post and the rear sight aperture that you're looking through. Well, we're on the earth. We're looking at the sun. That's like the, the, the rear sight post. And then the front sight is the stars that are behind it. And if you line those two up, you can tell where you are on the earth. As we go around, we, we, the, the rifle points towards different stars to use a 
that metaphor. Um, not mm-hmm. trying to not trying to use a violent metaphor, but anyway, back to all the way back to the Sphinx. Where does the Sphinx get? How can we date things by saying uh, the Sphinx is pointed at Leo? Well, Leo, the sun will be rising in Leo on an equinox, right? Because it's pointing due east. The sun will go further and further to the north, and it's rising as we get towards summer. Then it'll turn around, go further and further to the south. It'll rise due east on the equinoxes, um, and that it depends on your latitude. But anyway, you can go to the latitude of the Sphinx and say, hmm, if this thing's pointing due east and it's shaped like a lion, maybe it's trying to embody the constellation of Leo. When is the sun rising in Leo on the spring equinox? Because the sun will rise in Leo on some day of the year, you know, in any century. So that doesn't give you, you know, oh, right yeah, now, yeah, okay. it'll, it'll rise in Leo now, yeah. uh, but it won't rise in, in Leo. You know, it, it'll rise in Leo kind of like in August or actually September now because precession delays the constellation. So, so you can, so this actually relates to the processional cycle. But anyway, you can go back in time and say, when was it rising in Leo on the spring equinox? Well, that would have been, a very long time ago because now on the spring equinox it's basically rising in Aquarius that's where you get the age of Aquarius we're transitioning between it rising in Pisces on the spring equinox and Aquarius and we're much closer to Aquarius and some people would argue well we've already crossed over to Aquarius we're already in the age of Aquarius the boundary lines is difficult because the stars you know the constellations is um the area around them, there's kind of like a no man's land, right? Where, where do we draw the line? But okay, but sorry, where but, and why does the spring equinox <laughs> mark the this? Why is that significant again in the determining? Yeah, when it so rises, isn't it? well, <laughs> good question. <laughs> yeah, so actually, you know, um, the the where are we on our cycle? This actually gets into the question of, and I've used, a, I've made a little video that I, that I call the. The, the sun in your living room or in your dining room. If you think of the earth going around the sun on a round table, let's say you have a dining room table that's round and you and you put a, a fiery candle in the middle of it or you light a cotton ball on fire in the middle of your table mm-hmm. and you make that the sun and then you have the earth going around the outside of the table, right? And that's its orbit, a nice round. We know it's an ellipse, but uh, yeah. a little bit a little bit elliptical, but mostly round. We're going around this table. Where are we in the year? How do we know? Well, uh, fortunately, the walls of your dining room, let's say they have posters all the way around. You know, you've put your favorite rock stars all the way around the room and on the ceiling or your favorite, you know, pictures of of supermodels and uh, Hollywood figures, whatever. I got the logical fallacies behind me on a poster. Okay, great. So (laughs) whatever your favorite posters are, (laughs) or you paint paint stars all the way around your living room. In this case, your living room is outer space. So on on all the walls are different constellations. So you can tell where you are in the room by... Where when 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 the Earth is turned towards the Sun, all you see in the sky is the Sun. It drowns everything else out. When the Earth turns, when you're on the half of the Earth that's turned outward towards the walls, then the Sun is behind the Earth and it's down and it's dark, and you see out there. Oh, look, there's Orion. I'm passing the wall that has Orion on it. When you get around to the other side of the table, 
the wall with Orion on it, you'll only face that. The sun will be in the way. Yeah. You only face that during the daytime. You'll be like, where's Orion? Oh, well, we have to wait until we get back to the winter months. Okay. So I'm, I'm getting around to answering your question, and some people complain. Oh, man, this guy always takes so long to answer a question. Just answer the question. Well, I can't because i got to explain. It's complex. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of steps. Why, your question was, why does the spring equinox matter? <laughs> the, the point is, how do we know where we are on, the, on our circular path around the table? And the answer might be, well, I just look at my iPhone. Duh. It tells me what day it is. I got a calendar. Well, the calendar, the calendar is actually, you know, an amazing uh, feat of figuring things out. But the calendar actually slips a little bit, which is why we have leap year. Why does the calendar slip a little bit? Because to get back to that exact same point on the table is not an equal number of spins for our rotation on our daily spin. So it doesn't exactly spin 365 times to get back to the exact same point. It spins 365 and some extra times, and then you're back at the same point. So, and it's almost exactly 365 and a quarter, but it's not even a quarter. It's two point, uh, you know, 0.2422 and a whole bunch of more numbers. Yeah. So, so therefore, we throw in an extra day every four years to keep us because otherwise if you didn't eventually christmas would fall in you'd be like boy sure feels like summer how come we're celebrating christmas yeah Yeah, it's a middle it's the middle of summer dude and we're on christmas because the earth doesn't have a a perfect number of spins to get us so if we just counted the, the same number of days we'd we'd drift so we throw in this extra day but we don't actually throw in an extra day a lot of people don't know this i didn't know this for a long time we don't throw in an extra day on years that end in two zeros. So like 1900, uh, 1800, 1700, we typically don't throw in an extra day except for years that are divisible by 400. <laughs> okay, so, so there's many little exceptions to this, to this rule. Well, the reason is we're trying to figure out when we're back to the exact same point. Yeah. But if it's doing 365.2422 spins, then you can't throw in one day every four years or eventually you'll also drift off again because it's not 365.25. Right. That would be that'd be perfect. Then you wouldn't have to leave off the days that end in zero. So they every now and then they have to correct even for that by leaving out the leap year. So that's what's so what's going on? Your calendar isn't perfect, and that's why winter solstice or spring equinox or fall equinox even we just celebrated it on september 21st sometimes it's september 22nd sometimes it's september 21st and what happens is we drift you know in that four-year period it'll go from being september 21st to september 22nd and it'll drift around and then we recorrect on a leap year day we're bringing the calendar back the calendar is not accurate what's accurate is where exactly we are on that path so how do you figure out exactly where you are you can use these these handrails of A, the background stars, and B, the solstices and equinoxes. Because the exact point of equinox, you know you're back at the exact same point on the table. Right. Okay. So that's so your question was, why is this important? The answer is those are the real handholds. You set the calendar to those. Yeah. You don't set, <laughs> you don't set the holidays, the celebrations to the calendar. Uh, it without correcting because you'll drift and then you'll have Christmas in July and that won't be good. So then you won't be aligned with the universe, um, then you are dictating to the stars instead of the other way around. And every time that happens, 
every time you invert the proper order in the myths, it's terrible, right? When a, when a beautiful woman in the Greek myths starts claiming she's more beautiful than this or that goddess, you know trouble is going to ensue because, you know, that's, that's where we get Medusa or that's where, you know, why is this monster terrorizing our cities? Well, because the king's daughter said she was more beautiful than that goddess. Oh, I wish she wouldn't do that. So you don't dictate to the heavenly realm that you're above it. <laughs> you set yourself to what they're doing. And that's why we got to watch the calendar. So we don't celebrate Christmas in July because to do that would be to invert the proper order of things. So back to your question of the spring equinox, we know exactly at that point in, the, in some of these alignments, these ancient passages, you know, like Newgrange, the, the sun will hit the back stone, you know, they make this very long passage and the sun will only hit it on a certain day because it's perfectly aligned to the equinox, perfectly aligned to a solstice, yeah. perfectly aligned to one of the cross-quarter days. Halloween actually lines up with a cross-quarter day, which is halfway between a solstice and an equinox but anyway can we jump into that actually just based on the the time we're in uh, that halloween's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. so it's oh, a 40 day i read a bit of your yeah. post on that so the hallows eve is actually 40 days after the fall equinox well that so yeah so just to uh, uh let me jump to that yeah, yeah once. Cool. let me just close out the the lion sure so so the spring equinox is important because it's one of those handholds and it actually started the calendar in many ancient uh, traditions or systems, and in fact, probably what just to quickly close this thought out, probably that very ancient civilization see, I believe that all these myths they 're using the same system around the world. We already kind of hinted at that with when we were talking about the jawbone yeah. how come they 're using it all around the world? Probably some very ancient culture that may have been destroyed by a meteor or uh, a coronal mass ejection or you know climate might have changed radically not just slowly but radically almost overnight robert shock describes it as being very you know the ice age could have ended and he's a geologist you know the the cores that they're pulling up out of greenland seem to indicate a very rapid uh change end to the ice age anyway yeah it may be that that very ancient system that's found around the world came from some very ancient culture that's now forgotten and maybe even the dating of the calendar might have, they might have used spring equinox to start the calendar. But there's a, uh, there's a, a, a lot of cultures that start their sacred calendar at the spring equinox. You could start it at any of those four points. So these four points all have different spiritual meanings, but the spring equinox is the crossing back up into the, the daytime becomes longer than the hours of darkness. Uh, so it's a, it's a symbol of rebirth, and that's why it's a symbol of the new year starting. Uh, you can also start the year based off of the winter solstice, as we actually do, yeah. right? So, our, you know, our calendars. And, uh, you know, then there's Chinese New Year. Well, that's actually a lunisolar event. It's based on the first new moon after the winter solstice. So it's going to drift around even more because it's tying in both the cycle of the moon and the, the sun. And actually, Easter... And Passover are celebrated based on um, moon and sun indicators. So just to close out that, um, so now we're talking, now your question is, well, hey, we're not getting closer to spring here right now. We're getting closer to winter. Mm -hmm. So what's up with Halloween? It's a very important um, 
uh, Alvin Boyd Kuhn, who is a, a writer on esoteric subjects, um, who I believe lived from 1885 to 1965 or thereabouts, 1963. I'm just saying it off the top of my head, so I may be a little bit off on those dates, but about that time period, wrote a, a book called Lost Light that he published in 1940, which is, I think, one of his clearest and most kind of encyclopedic explanations of some of these he was mostly tying it to the the four points of the year the the summer solstice the fall equinox the winter solstice not necessarily to the constellations so when i start getting into the myths and seeing that they're based on constellations that actually it's kind of like a dial that has even more uh, fine tuning on it once you can start using the constellations you can start talking about you know um gradations in between those big points of the you know so there's the great cross of the year summer solstice winter solstice spring equinox fall equinox four different points so that divides that's like the, having the the dial you like if you got a stereo that only plays four volumes very mm-hmm. quiet <laughs> very quiet louder super loud <laughs> you know and then like blows blows out the, the you know, blow out your speakers loud yeah. if you only had four four volumes that wouldn't be very good so then they have cross quarter days which are halfway in between so now you got eight different volumes that's even better okay yeah i didn't think of of that so so halloween is one of those cross quarter days right it's in between the fall equinox and the winter solstice okay so uh it's like november 1st is All Souls Day, and the night before All Souls Day is All Souls Eve, or All Hallows Eve, or All Hallows Evening, Halloween, um, is a cross-quarter day. Uh, Groundhog Day is the cross-quarter day in between winter okay. solstice and spring. Uh, and then there's also May Day, which is uh, also you know celebrated in in places like Maypoles, they used to dance around maypoles in England, and then the, the, the Calvinists really didn't like that, and they chopped down all the maypoles and made it illegal to dance around maypoles. But anyway, all those uh, different points of the year. So now you have eight, and then once you start to add the uh, zodiac, then you've got 12, so you can get even more fine-tuning. Um, and anyway, the specific cross-quarter day of Halloween and All Hallows' Eve, they work together. Alvin Boyd Kuhn said this was one of the most important, if not the most important, celebrations of the whole year, because it is the time excuse me, of descending into it it represents so all these different points on the dial represent different points on our own spiritual journey and as we were talking about the you know, the the Yule log and then the Christmas tree, that's kind of the point of turning point of winter solstice where we stop getting colder and we start getting warmer. We stop, the days start getting shorter and they start getting longer. It's a turning point back upwards. Well, the, the fall equinox is the point where we descend down from the days being longer to the days being shorter. It's this crossing point down and it represents our fall it's the fall equinox, right? We, we call it autumn. We also call it the fall season. And it actually, spiritually speaking, represents our fall down from the spiritual. It doesn't actually 
represent you might think oh going into darkness that represents death like the end of our life yeah. the the lower part might seem to mean oh the underworld the world of the dead it actually and Albert Boyd Kuhn is, is is who argues this and I believe he's right um, I'm sure other people have argued it as well but the ancient system is not using the under the the winter part of the world as the land of death it's actually our life here in this mortal body is symbolically death because we're detached from the spirit world we're we're out of touch with the spiritual world so this fall so at halloween we dress up in you know we put on masks like an animal or like a dead body like a mummy or a you know a ghoul or something it's this time of representation of hey we've fallen into a human body an, an animal body we're 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 traveling through the land of the dead now here because we're disconnected from spirit and we got to get reconnected with spirit so we put little candles inside of pumpkins right it's like we're the pumpkin the body but we have a spark inside a little a little glowing spark a little divine fire inside it, you know it's a picture of who we are we're yeah. we're a claw we're a clod of 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 flesh but we also have this spark inside so anyway halloween you mentioned the 40 days why is it 40 days after well 40 days um alvin boyd kuhn argues and i think probably correctly that 40 is used in all these different you see it a lot in the bible right the 40 days and 40 nights yeah. or uh jesus fasts for 40 days in luke chapter 4 i believe um there's 40 years in the desert after crossing the red sea and he says look this is a number it represents generations right because like you're you said you're 28 right do you have any children yet no okay but yeah when i was 29 I had, you know, my first son was born when I was 29. So where did he come from? Well, you know, he came from the spirit world or, you know, he came from the, the realm of pure potentiality. When I was 28, he was somewhere, but I don't know where he was. And then now he's, you know, now he's uh, 17, right? But um, but where where was he before? He was in the spirit realm. He was in the, this invisible realm. Well, anyway, generations would often be, uh, you know, there's a 40-year kind of generation you know, now I'm in my 40s. My son is in his, you know, teens. Uh, my son's both in their teens. But the generations, you know, 40 is a year of generations. But it's also a year, uh, a number of gestation, at least in human beings. It's different for elephants or, you know, mice and rats. They have different gestation periods. But ours happens to be, we say nine months. But it's not really, uh, if you talk to a doctor, they would say, oh, no, it's 280 weeks. Uh, wait. That's not right. 280 weeks would be like several years. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, 40 weeks, which uh, four times seven, 280 days. <laughs> right, right, right. 280 weeks would be a long pregnancy. But anyway, <laughs> 40 weeks is a human – that is a much more accurate way of describing a human pregnancy is, or gestation period is 40 weeks. Um, you know, which week is she in? If you're a if you're a doctor who specializes in those things, or a a doula, or a midwife, or you know someone who's really involved in that, you know, oh well, she's in this week. Okay, this should be happening. Well, so 40 days is a gestational number according to Alvin Boyd Kuhn. So it kind of represents our birth into this world, or you know we fall we fall into this world at the point of conception, maybe is it spring equinox or fall equinox? Sorry, and then. There's the uh, 40th day we celebrate Halloween and we run around in masks in the night and we're, 
you know, we're, we're celebrating all this symbology that has to do with, hey, we're here in the dark part of the cycle. Hey, we have a human body. Hey, but we still have a spark, a divine spark. Let's not forget that. But uh, let's celebrate all these things that have to do with kind of, and it's a crossing point between the spirit realm and the material realm. It's the time when, you know, uh, traditionally the, the barrier, the membrane between the invisible world and the visible world is the thinnest. So you have, you know, the crossing over of spirits are showing up more at this time of year, et cetera. Yeah. So at this time, yeah, I mean, so I'm, hopefully I'll release this one before Halloween so people can maybe uh, look up a bit more on this and kind of be a bit more conscious of it when they go out there and dress up and kind of think about the where they're at on the dial and what it might mean to uh, to us uh, on the spiritual level, or the unseen level. Right, and you know, I think it is. Um, I think it is these traditions that have come down to us. I think are good to keep traditions and um i'm not against you know some sometimes i am concerned because i took the bible literally for a long time and i found a lot of beauty and truth in it so i don't believe that uh studying the bible is bad at all i think it's actually wonderful i'm very glad that i studied the bible and and know it you know fairly well so that i could see you know, once I started to see the constellations, I said, oh, yeah, I could see how it lines up more and more. Um, and I believe once you start to understand this kind of system that we're talking about, how the ancient myths use the different parts of the cycle to talk about things that are real in our own lives, you actually uh, do have a, a spiritual component. Um, you actually do have points of contact with the invisible realm, whether you acknowledge it or whether conventional academia acknowledges it or not, there are things that cannot be explained uh, by the kind of conventional, super materialistic, uh, you know, extremely materialistic, strictly materialistic uh, worldview. There are, there are things that are even, you know, experiments that have been done like quantum physics that don't seem to really, you know, they had to change physics because of the things that they find in these experiments. Well, there's things where people um, can do kind of almost paranormal or parapsychology, um, remote viewing type of things that have been, uh, you know, and, and some people will contest this, but there have been experiments set up that seem to indicate hey, there's something more going on here than strictly materialist. So, the more you can understand the, the ancient wisdom, I believe, is there to try and tell us things that we need to know. And so, yeah, the more you understand it, the more you can um, maybe get integrated with that other part of the uh, other part of your that that the other side of the side. coin, right? Yeah. It's it, I and, I think it's even if you want to take a materialistic approach to life, uh, or even if we say, okay, our science books are only going to show this at this point. We we can't add this esoteric stuff in here because it doesn't actually jive with science or whatever it might be. There's still a subjective experience before your death where you are not going to learn everything on paper and by math or or in one sort of equation of how it all there's still a feeling of going through life and whether you want to call that spirituality or a soul or whatever you want words you want to use to describe it doesn't really matter because there's constantly this this uh 
this experience, right? This this experience of, of living. And I think these myths and stories and uh, also just considering the stars and the vastness of the universe and our cyclic nature on this on this planet and how that all uh, coalesces into our, our that feeling of a soul. Um, it just it just goes to show you that that you might not understand everything, but the, these things can help you to understand on a daily basis or on a moment to moment basis sort of your place within your within the world and, and, and how you interact with it, if that makes sense. No, I think that's well said. And actually, you know, I know that you're pretty into music, right? Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> where does music come from? Where where do these great artists that write songs sometimes say, oh, well, I don't know where it came from. It just came to me one night. I woke up. I had to write it down or this, you know, or actually I used this, uh, you know, special plant that got me into this state of altered consciousness. And then the song came to me. Yeah. Well, how did that happen? Or how does that happen? Why, why do shamanic, um, you know, there's a, a book written in the 50s called Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy by a French uh, researcher named, uh, I probably won't say his name exactly right, but Mercia uh, Eliade. Uh, but it's kind of an encyclopedic examination of firsthand accounts um, of shamanic cultures and different methodologies they had of contacting the spirit realm. Some of them use tobacco, some of them use marijuana or cannabis or, um, you know, not necessarily smoking it, sometimes putting it on a fire inside of a, you know, a lodge or something. But there's all different ways. It doesn't necessarily need to use outside. You can use drumming is one of the most common, commonly used techniques Anywhere you are in the world, if you don't have that certain mushroom doesn't grow on the island in the Pacific, maybe where you find yourself, you can still get in touch with that other realm. Well, where does music come from and why is music so powerful in our lives and why is music so important? Um, and, and, uh, and also, you know, singing or chanting, you know, there actually every culture – except modern culture, it's kind of been like beaten out of us, but every culture is actually a singing culture. And like the uh, sacred song, each, you know, each person would have their own song. Like in many Native American tribes, they would, you know, maybe a shaman would give your song to you or you might uh, get it yourself from the spirit world, but they would sing it when they woke up in the morning. They'd sing it before they went to bed or (laughs) chant it. They'd sing it um, you know, just at certain times when they're under stress. Uh, so, um, the doing these things, like, so the last part of your, you know, comment there was we can kind of align ourselves or get in tune every day. I, I think that's true. And I think that it's actually probably positive and beneficial. And if you look at, um, so I said it's kind of been stamped out in Western culture. Actually, if you go back, you know, like rugby teams still have their own songs or um, the Norwegian club in San Francisco. My grandfather came over from Norway um, and the Norwegian club still sings. You know, there's still a Norwegian club that gathers for dinner every week and they sing before dinner and they sing. <laughs> They, they, uh, during the meal, you know, while everybody's, everybody's socializing and having their meal and all of a sudden, Oh, it's time for another song and we'll sing in the middle of the meal. So these older traditions incorporated song 
um, throughout the day. And, and there were songs. And if, even if you watch movies, um, you know, from your, your last name is Dutch. You've got a Dutch heritage. If you look at uh, the movie, have you ever seen the movie? We saw this movie like a million times at West Point. I went to West Point and they, wa- they made us watch it a lot of times. Cause That's a military uh, academy? It, yeah, it's a military academy in the United States. And this movie was called Breaker Morant. Have you ever heard of the movie Breaker Morant? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's about a horrible, terrible war called the Boer War. And the Boers, oh, yeah, okay. course, the Boers are Dutch farmers in South Africa. And, of course, you know, there's all kinds of issues with race relations yeah, there. Yeah, don't remind and, me of my right. uh, well, mistakes. Well, <laughs> anyway, the, uh, but they were very strictly Calvinistic um, people like, um, like uh, Kruger, Paul Kruger, that the Krugerrand is named after was very his wife um was actually kind of a a, like a shaman type of a person she she knew kind of you know how to get the chickens to lay eggs if if one of the you know chickens in the neighborhood wasn't laying eggs she knew how to she knew how to like do the right things to get the chicken to lay eggs again And, and paul Kruger only read the bible i don't even think he read the newspaper even when he was ahead of you know so anyway um if you watch this movie Breaker Morant, it's actually between the English and the Boers. The the, the English were basically taking over. Uh, anyway, we won't get into all the politics and all the racial parts of it. But in I'm I'm actually referring to it for the song parts of it. In that movie, you see that that culture, which is now over a hundred years ago, I think it took place in 1902 when that trial was going on. You see the Boers are there's a there's a Dutch guy who comes in and sings in basically Afrikaans, which is a form of Dutch, mm-hmm. uh, sings this beautiful song. All these English soldiers are like assembled for dinner and they like bring him in and he sings this song and uh, is very moving. And he's singing about his country that's getting taken away from him by this basically imperialistic invasion in a very moving way. And the women who are, who are dining with these soldiers – you know, the, the soldiers are like they're dining with the Dutch women and they all like start to look down at the table because they're really ashamed because they're kind of uh, consorting with the enemy. And this guy's singing this moving song and it, it moves them and they realize uh, something is very wrong here. But uh, all that aspect of it aside, I'm talking about the this was obviously a culture where singing was still part of it. And even the uh, English Actually, there's an Australian guy, Breaker Morant, Harry Morant. He's a historical figure who was actually executed. But he sings a song in this, in this movie too. And, uh, you know, back then they, they would just gather and sing at dinner and everyone would listen to whoever. We don't even do that anymore, you know, or right. we don't – it's not part of our daily life. And then I was going to say, so there, there's one way that you can incorporate or get in touch with the spirit world through music, but also – since these things have been stamped out in the West during the sixties, especially, or even in the fifties and it it goes back to the forties and even 1800s, there were people who started to go to places. They would, they would say, Hey, something's missing here. I want to go to somewhere where this hasn't been stamped out. And they would go to India and get into yoga or they would go to uh, India and get into types of kind of transcendental meditation practices or, or they chanting would go, and stuff like that too right chanting absolutely or they would go to china and get into um the wisdom that's still there that wasn't stamped out as much as it was here and t- 
Tai Chi or Kung Fu, you know, it's all started to become very, in the 60s, it was like, whoa, who is this Bruce Lee figure who's talking about these things? And everybody's like, whoa, he's totally blowing my mind yeah. with the stuff he's talking about and the moves that he's doing. Um, you know, the 60s was this big time of kind of like, uh, you know, the Beatles start bringing Eastern sitar sounds into their music and people start going to these other cultures. But anyway, what I was going to say is, yoga will will use they'll do sun salutations every morning facing the sun uh what you what are you doing is you're lining your daily life up with the motions of the planet in the celestial sphere and getting in and getting in touch with the spirit world that way you can do it through yoga you can do it through tai chi has a form that has 108 movements, which actually 108 is a processional number. So by doing this form every day or doing your kung fu move uh, that has 108 parts to it every day, you can start lining up with the spirit world and then you can start actually getting in touch with aspects of your self that you didn't know about before. So uh, I, do, I do think, you know, what you said, you said, if that makes any sense, I think it makes a lot of sense to, to, to tie in with, to, to align our lives with it, not just on an annual basis, but to start incorporating these things. You know, I'd encourage people to pursue yoga or pursue Kung Fu. I think it's, if, if it's at all possible for you and available to do it, I think it can add tremendous dimension to your life so. yeah and i just want to finish up with one sort of statement for people who might be listening that are either they they are very materialistic or they when they hear the word spiritual they get kind of turned off i just think that regardless of how you interpret all this stuff whether there's a right way or wrong way i think there is at least one type of way to interpret it that can be even just materialistic but that can also still in those words get you in tune with the universe and yourself because when you mentioned for example the 108 being a processional number and just if you were to say face the sun or or, or participate in these 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 activities it's still you're be, you're getting in touch more with at least the materialistic world how the you know, how the the bodies in in the in space move around and all that right it can even just get you into physics uh, that, that, absolutely true so i i do think that um you know, like Taoism um, kind of resists being categorized as a religion or as a, as a philosophy. It's kind of, yeah. uh, you know, you don't have to be – there's there's all different um, all different levels of, you know, how many gods they talk about in the, the Vedic texts versus Taoism almost uh, depersonalizes – there's no real talk of gods and goddesses running around, and yet they're talking about the same cycles and the same. It's the it's principles about, are there, right? Yeah, and I believe yeah, I believe this ancient wisdom in all these different forms that it is now seen in was given to men and women, humanity, as a precious inheritance from somewhere. We could argue about where it came from, <laughs> yeah. but it's there for our benefit, and um, it's talking about things that are beneficial to us to do and i do believe that you can miss the message in a variety of different ways if you're too you know if you, you got to be we we want to be careful not to be too closed minded but you can miss the message by being too literal with it and thinking oh this is only about well samson what does he have to do with me he had 
superhuman strength and I don't. He lived thousands of years ago and I live in, you know, 2016. Here we are coming up on Halloween in 2016. Mm -hmm. What does Samson have to do with me? Well, actually, the story is about you in a lot of ways and probably in most of the ways have to do with you (laughs) rather than someone who lived thousands of years ago. So you can miss it by being too literalistic. You can miss it by being too, uh, you know, too anti spiritualistic. But like you said, you can start to align yourself. You know, you don't have to have any, uh, if you're uncomfortable with that, you don't have to get, you don't have to think about that aspect of it, but maybe you'll start to feel good just doing yoga every day. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, without, without even dwelling on all that. I think that's a great, I think that's a great uh, place to, to finish up. I think this stuff is beneficial to us and, and it's good for us to, to delve into it. For sure. Well, David, man, thanks so much for doing this again uh, with me. And where can people find more on your blog and uh, maybe plug uh, anything you're, you're working on or your Twitter? Yeah, thanks. So definitely thanks for having me on. I hope that people uh, find it beneficial to, to uh, you know, consider these things uh, hopefully it's been coherent so i do have a blog that's been going for uh i guess six maybe going on seven years um maybe not that long maybe five or six years but in any case um i have a website called starmythworld.com starmythworld.com if people forget that you can just actually use my last name you know just look on the Look on the show notes and type in my last name and type in the word stars. You'll probably find a, a bunch of links that will take you to. So I had a blog going for a long time and it's still going. And it's also incorporated into starmythworld.com. So it's in that it's in it's on its own on a blogger site and it's also on Star Myth World. So the links might take you to one or the other, but they all have links to get you to Star Myth World. And there you can find links also to myths that I, you know, we didn't talk about, we talked about some, but on Star Myth World, there's a link that's just click there and you can see different myths. And I talk about how I believe this myth relates to different celestial constellations or cycles. Um, I've got a link for books. I've written, uh, I've got five books out there now. Um, The Undying Stars talks a lot about this. And then more recently, I've been writing a, a multi-volume series called Star Myths of the World and How to Interpret Them that kind of is trying to teach you this system. It, it actually, the first half of the book will explain the myth or relate the myth and give you some clues like, okay, Samson is reaching out and grabbing a jawbone. You know, what constellation might that, it, it won't tell you the answer or what I think the interpretation is. It's I'm not saying I have the right answer, but yeah. then it then it says that you read the story of stamps and then it'll say, okay, now turn to page 350 for some interpretation of this, and then I give what I believe may be the interpretation. I I really encourage people. It's like a language. I encourage people to learn it themselves. So the books kind of try and take you through the language step by step to learn the language. Um, and th- there, there's three volumes out there now. Volume one talks about a variety of myths, including some from the Americas, some from ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient India, ancient China, ancient Japan, Australia, Africa. This I'm trying to show that it's worldwide, yeah. the, the Pacific. Then volume two strictly goes into the Greek myths, and volume three 
is star myths of the Bible. So that strictly goes into the Bible. So those are all available, uh, you know, at local bookstores. Or you can ask your library if they would mind putting it in there. You don't even have to buy it. Just ask your library to buy it and you can read it for free. Um, but you can go to the books section of the website and see some table of contents, sample content. Um, you can find them on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can ask your local bookstore, et cetera. And you can just read the blog for free. There's like, (laughs) there's like 950 or 925 entries that you can, you can fully search it. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's fully searchable. So if you want to just search for the term shamanic, or if you want to search for, I don't know, the star Antares, see what, you know, see what, what blog post mentioned Aldebaran, you can search for that. Cool stuff, man. Thanks, David, again so much, and uh, happy Halloween. Enjoy yourself, and take care. Best of luck. Thanks a lot, Derek. Best wishes to you, and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.